Hey, welcome back to Crimes and Closets. This is Christy in my closet in St. Louis. And this is Beth in my closet in North Carolina. Happy October. Yes, uh, September is behind us. Yes, that was a really crazy month. And now it's my birth month and it's going to be crazier. Yep. yep. For different yes. reasons, hopefully. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for sure. For sure, for different reasons. And I mean, we're starting it out with a bang because this one's, it's there. This is a real... <laughs> humdinger of a doozy yeah and it's as um we answered this is my quote-unquote favorite case if you can say favorite (laughs) as we answered last week on our yes we don't like that word because they're all awful yeah but this one this is it so give it keep your pants on just give it to me just come on okay (laughs) tell them what they want to hear all right here we go okay So this case was suggested by our friend on Instagram, Carrie, who I believe is a North Carolina person. Yes. She's suggested cases before. Yes. Mm -hmm. Probably. (laughs) She probably suggests a lot of them. But anyway, Um, the interesting part of this story is that Carrie lived in the same apartment complex that the crime occurred in at the time that it occurred. So, yeah, so she was there, and so she suggested this book to read, which is what I read for my entire research, essentially, because it had everything laid out right there, and it was a fantastic book. So we got another book that we can give away to anybody that might want to read it. It's really good. Fun. Yes, I couldn't put it down. Once I started actually reading it, I think I read it in two and a half days. It's awesome. Um, And... So I also spoke to Carrie because I thought it would be fun to talk to somebody who was there when the crime happened and get their perspective on it. So at the end of this episode, there'll be a little extra ditty for you to listen to about, you know, Carrie's perspective on when this occurred and how she felt and all that kind of stuff. How cool is that? Yes. Are so inclined to stick around and listen to it. It's not very long. It's probably about 10-ish minutes, something like that. So stick around for that. I am definitely inclined. All right. All right. So this is the Stephanie Bennett story. Stephanie was born on April 30th, 1979, which might I add is just almost exactly a year younger than me. Okay. She was born to Molly and Carmen Bennett. She grew up in Rocky Mount, Virginia. Because isn't there a Rocky Mount, North Carolina? There is. Yes. Okay. Well, she was born in Rocky Mount, Virginia. Okay. Or grew up there. She was somewhat of a shy child, but as she got to know you, her personality would come out and she would open up. Her parents divorced when she was young, but they always lived pretty close to each other, so she still got to spend like quite a bit of time with both her parents, I'm guessing pretty equally. Um, she got Miss Personality for her senior year at, of high school at Franklin County High School. Do you remember the superlatives? Do they still yes, do Yes, we just talked about that in another case, not like few months ago yeah I, I remember that too and i think we asked the same yeah. question if anybody knows let us know <laughs> <laughs> i think they still do it yeah i i just i haven't gotten a yearbook and i don't know how long i have i have one coming this year from isaiah so yeah we'll you'll have to let <clears throat> us know so she went on to go to college at roanoke college and graduated in 2001 during her time at Roanoke College, she met a boy at a sorority dance who she hit it off with, but he had come to that dance with someone else, and Stephanie was somewhat concerned with how that girl would feel about him talking to another girl or dancing, so she basically was like, I'm not interested, which was, you know, pretty re- um, respectful, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 
But soon after after that, Walter, which is his name. I don't know if I even mentioned that earlier, but his name was Walter. Walter and Stephanie. Oh, Walter. Yes. They began dating. And not long after graduation, Stephanie moved to Raleigh, North Carolina, for a job with IBM. And Walter moved to Greenville, South Carolina, to start his graduate degree in engineering. Oh, that's kind of far apart. Yes. So, exactly. And they didn't really intend to have this long-distance relationship, but they were making it work. And in fact, Walter gave her a promise ring for Christmas in 2001. Oh, that's nice. Yes. So Stephanie was living in Raleigh with her friend Emily and her stepsister Deanna. The three of them had moved there together after school. Um, They lived in an apartment complex in Raleigh on Lake Lynn Drive called Bridgeport Apartments. And that's just off Leesville Road if you are familiar with the area, which I'm sure you are. I do. I know Leesville Road. I don't know where that other road is. Lake Lynn Drive? Yeah. You know where Lake Lynn is? Pizza place on Leesville Road. It's good. Oh, really? Oh. It's like a brickyard pizza oven, the oven pizzas. Oh, that sounds yummy. I'll have to try it sometime. Yes. I'm in the area. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of want a pizza now. (laughs) So in May of 2002, the three had been planning to go their separate ways. They had lived there for almost a year. Um, Deanna was going to move back to, or back, move to Richmond, Virginia. And Emily was going to go back to Roanoke, Roanoke because she's, decided to change her career path and started to take some classes back at the Roanoke College again. So she's like, I'm going to move back. Deanna was leaving. And Stephanie wanted to move to South Carolina to be with Walter. Walter, yes. So that's the plan. And Stephanie's plan is to move in July of 2002. Stephanie had just gone to South Carolina to spend some time with Walter for the weekend of May 17th in 2002. They had been looking for apartments together and planning their future. Stephanie was not looking forward to going back to Raleigh. She was not feeling too safe being at her apartment complex. There had been a few things that had happened lately that made her feel unsafe. Um, There's a lake right there, which is why it's called Lake Lynn, which I kept calling Lynn Lake when I was talking with Carrie, and I (laughs) could not get it out of my head. So anyway, a woman jogging around the lake had been raped while jogging. A car had been stolen. Oh my goodness. Yes. Mm -hmm. A car had been stolen from the parking lot and there were were reports of a peeping Tom in the area. So, and the- Creepy. Yeah, that is creepy. The latest report was from the end of April when he had been spotted outside of Stephanie's window. And so it really freaked her out to be at the apartment right now. Oh, I bet. Yeah. Oh my, that's this is ominous, isn't it? Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, it would really freak me out as well. And so, and their building also backed up to this wooded area. And so, when she was coming back from her weekend from in South Carolina, Emily and Deanna were not there. Emily had gone back to attend some of the classes, and Deanna was back in Rocky Mount attending a funeral. So she was like, oh, "I really don't want to be here by myself, and all this junk is happening." But I mean, she had to do what she had to do because she had to go back to work. Right. So on Monday, she came home from work. And as her in her usual routine, she spoke to Walter on the phone at 8 p.m. This is Monday the 20th. And I believe that Emily also called her around that time. I think they said, like, call waiting. She buzzed in during her phone call with Walter. So that she had spoken to Walter and Emily that night. 
During her conversation with Walter, they had talked about needing to get an application in for an apartment that they were interested in. And so they had made a plan for Walter to fax her that application at work so she could sign it and get it back to him. So they were like, tomorrow morning, I'm going to fax this to you. Just let me know when you're in work and when you're near the fax machine so you can get it right away and whatever. So on Tuesday, May 21st, 2002, Walter waited to hear from Stephanie so he could send the fax. He called her. He emailed her at work around 11, but she didn't get back to him. And he just assumed that, well, she must have gotten busy at work. Like, that's fine. I'll, you know, just I'll go have lunch and I'll try and get in touch with her later. So he emailed her again later that afternoon and also tried to call her. And again, he got no answer. He called Deanna, and they both agreed that this was very unlike her. She's very reliable, always answered, or got back to you right away. So Deanna started to make some calls and found out that Stephanie had not come into work that day at all, which was even more strange. Yeah. So Deanna decided to send a friend over to the apartment to just kind of do like somewhat of a wellness check on their own. They discovered that Stephanie's car was still at the apartment complex, but she was not answering the door. Deanna calls and gives the apartment manager permission to enter the apartment to check on her. And as soon as the manager walks in, they find Stephanie's body in Emily's bedroom on the floor, tied up with a blue pair of underwear in her mouth. And the manager leaves mm. immediately and calls the police because he's like, she's, she's been murdered. Like, there's no other, other oh, way to describe the scene. She was dead. Oh. Yes. When police arrive at 3.33 p.m., they find Stephanie, just as the manager had said. She was naked, on the floor, tied up, with purple marks around her neck and blue underwear in her mouth. They find her wallet and compare a photo on the driver's license to the girl on the floor. And preliminarily, (laughs) preliminarily, is that a word? (laughs) I think it is now. I like it. (laughs) They say that it's Stephanie, although, which I didn't know this, it cannot officially be confirmed until the autopsy. But right. It looks like it. Deanna had called her stepfather, because remember, Deanna is um, Stephanie's stepsister. So she called her stepfather, which was Stephanie's dad, as soon as she knew that someone had been found in the apartment, and Carmen and his wife, Jennifer, got in the car and drove the four hours straight to Raleigh. Yeah. Yes, so sad. Um, The police start to scour the crime scene. There were some leaves on top of laundry in a basket and this basket was just under the window in Emily's room and there was a blanket folded at the foot of her bed and a few items had been moved but nothing really looked like it was disheveled you know if you didn't know that these items were there you wouldn't have known that they were moved somewhere else in the room Emily knew but we wouldn't have known or like police wouldn't have known unless Emily said no 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 that was over here so um one thing was that a phone had been moved to the closet and a few other items inside the closet were moved and kind of like out of place. And the same with Stephanie's room. It didn't appear that anything had happened to the room aside from some blankets in a pile on the floor at the foot of the bed. Her pillows were on her bed in the shape of a U, which I guess is apparently how she liked to kind of snuggle up in bed when she went to sleep. Mm-hmm. So... Initially, the police are thinking that the person came in through the window in Emily's room, which is why there were leaves kind of in her laundry basket just under the window, hid in Emily's closet until Stephanie was sleeping, and then that's when he made his move. Semen is found Mm. on 
several parts of her body. So clearly that's evidence that is collected and kept because DNA forensics had just kind of had some more advancements not long before this. So they were pretty confident that this was going to be the way that they would catch whoever did this. They realized the perpetrator took $8 from her wallet. How they know that, I don't know, because... I was just getting ready to ask, how in the world? I mean, unless, like, Walter knew she had exactly $8 when she left South Carolina. I don't right, know, or but- she, like, had an ATM receipt or something that said she took out $40, but only 32 were present. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. So, anyway, but they, she took, they took $8 from her wallet, a boombox, took her laundry basket, because her clothes were dumped on the floor, and a stereo that she had just gotten as a gift. And so they're kind of thinking, well, he was taking these items, and so maybe they, he was like, oh, let me put this in the laundry basket so it doesn't look weird that I'm carrying a stereo out of the apartment. Right. So that's kind of their thinking. They did not release that the laundry basket was taken to the media because that was kind of their one thing that they were holding back as like proof if somebody mentioned a laundry basket or whatever that they'd be able to prove this person knew something or had something to do it. I don't know why they chose laundry basket, but... (laughs) Whatever, I guess it's. Kind I would of an think odd. it would be the eight dollars, right? <laughs> Either way, there it's an odd things, yeah, yeah. It's an odd thing to 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 know. So, right. anyway, they interview and talk to neighbors, checking to see if anyone saw anything, and also to tell them to lock their doors and windows. And as you will hear later on in my discussion with Carrie, that she's you know kind of corroborating this that she got spoken to to um, by the police and whatnot. Wow. Yeah. How scary for her. Oh, my goodness. Right. So they started to check out the surrounding area, and they find dozens of thongs on a bush nearby, along with a red duffel bag with a hotel logo on it. They find out that a hotel had given these bags away at some point, and they had, like, hundreds of them. And I think they were in a basement, and some of them got ruined in a a flood or something, and so they were throwing half of them out and some employees took them for friends and family. And so basically they're like, there's no way we can narrow down who has these hotel bags. So it doesn't, you mean thong underwear, right? Yes. So just like dozens of thongs. Some of them were just like sitting on a bush and then there was some on the ground. Like somebody had just kind of like tossed them up in the air and was like, I got to get rid of them. (laughs) Whatever. I don't know. Oh my, that's weird. It is. It is very weird. So at any rate, there's really no way that they can kind of tie these bags to anybody. So it doesn't really help them. So, but they, through questioning of neighbors, that they find that a teenager who lived actually shared in the bedroom, shared, I'm sorry, shared a bedroom wall with Stephanie's bedroom. So he lived in the apartment like next to her and his wall and her wall were their bedroom walls. He admitted to stealing the thongs from a laundry room and then dumped them because he was like, all right, I don't, I don't want to get rid of them. And so it was kind of suspicious, but he insisted that he had nothing to do with the murder. And they do end up clearing him because they're like, well, just because a weird teenager stole some thongs doesn't mean he like went into Stephanie's apartment and murdered her. <laughs> you know what I think? When people do things like this is off track, but when people do silly things like that, like steal a bunch of thong underwear, and then they grow up and they're adults, do you ever think they think about that? And they're like, remember that one time? When I stole a bunch of women's underwear and then threw them in a tree. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder if they do think about that. I would. I I think about weird things that I did when I was little. I do. Yeah, we do. Anyway. Okay. So they don't really think the teenager has anything to do with it. 
the lead detective has his team go home at this point and they like in the evening just to get some rest because they're like we need to this is going to be a doozy we need some like fresh eyes we need to get rest and come back to this in the morning and but they leave a patrolman there to keep an eye out to make sure that the scene doesn't get disturbed and so the chief was actually really pissed the next day when she found out that they left and went home and didn't like really completely thoroughly do the scene because she felt like you must have missed something whatever he's like but we needed to go home and get rest and we left people here nothing happened but anyway that's was kind of a side note so they come back the next day and they continue to question people look for evidence but they don't really get much nobody has any idea who would have done this except this peeping tom that was you know Outside yeah, windows. and all the other crimes that had happened in the area. Right, but nobody had any idea who would have done this to her because she was just such a nice person. Like, nobody, there was nobody that didn't like her. She she was right. a sweet girl. There was zero people that had problems with her. So she, they they were just at a loss. They had no idea. So with all of the interviews and descriptions of the Peeping Tom, they release a sketch of what they think this Peeping Tom looks like hoping maybe it'll jog someone's memories. They kind of put it together from multiple people's, you know, perspectives. And since there's so much semen at the scene, DNA is also their best bet. So clearly they run that through the system, but no matches come up, which means the perpetrator has probably not been arrested before or given his DNA sample for any reason. So there, there's a dead end that they run into again. So they also clear Walter. I'm sure you were probably wondering when I was going to get to Walter because they yes. usually look at the boyfriend first. So. But they clear Walter I'm assuming he had an alibi in South Carolina, right? Well, he was 270 miles away and he had talked to her on the phone, you know, like from his home. So because I think people still kind of had some um, home phones then, maybe. Right. Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there was just no way that he could have gotten there and back again like committed that murder and then gotten back home in the time span that she had been found. So they cleared family members also by getting their DNA. Um, There was a rapist from Alabama that apparently was in custody. And so they were comparing his DNA, but that wasn't a match. I mean, they were just going for it. Like what, what can we, we're grasping at straws here because we need, we need to know something. We need to find something out. So they also get to the point of just asking people that live near the neighborhood or the, the apartments, will you submit DNA? Because, well, maybe we can eliminate as many people as we right. can. And then we'll just, or maybe we'll happen to come across somebody. And also their thinking was too, is if they find someone who refuses to give their DNA, it's probably somebody you should look at as a suspect. So, hmm. yeah. I don't love that logic. I don't love that logic. I, I don't either, but that's just what they said their belief is. And, right. So, yeah. And there were three gentlemen that lived above Stephanie that had been refusing to give their DNA. And so they sent a pretty persuasive woman detective out there, apparently. She <laughs> is really good at talking people into doing things. And I guess she just walked up to him and was like, just give me the damn sample. <laughs> So they did. All righty. So they did. Okay. They did. And they were cleared. So they were just refusing. So along with your, like, not agreeing with the detectives, they were refusing, but just to refuse. Like, they didn't have anything to hide. They didn't do it. Obviously not, yeah. Right. So anyway, 
A DNA anal- analyst from University of Virginia comes to offer his assistance with the testing. He had been working with DNA before the FBI even started working with it. So he was pretty knowledgeable. And all of the labs there were overwhelmed with samples. And so this guy kind of came to like push anything that came through on this case to the front of the line and rush them through. So they had that on their side. Police started to just sit near the apartment watching it. And on June 3rd, they see a man looking into a window. And then he moves onto another window and notices that he is masturbating. So they. Okay. Yes, gross. They immediately go and arrest him. His name was Christopher Lee Campin, and he had several charges of peeping and stalking and was even convicted of stalking in 1998. But again, his DNA clears him because it did not match. They attest the DNA against anyone and everyone that comes into their sightline that has done similar crimes within a range of the area, but each time the DNA clears everyone, and they're just getting blocked at every single turn. On June 20th, the cause of death is released. It was strangulation. She had a 13-inch ligature mark on her neck and marks on her wrists and ankles, a bruise above her right eye, and hemorrhaging in her eyes, which points to the strangulation, and marks on the back of her neck that indicate that a stick was used to, like, tighten whatever was used to strangle Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I don't think that whatever was used to strangle her was left. Like, that wasn't left there, or the stick or anything. So this is just what they're getting based on looking at the body. Oh, my gosh. I can't imagine. And here, Carrie, our listener, is just living right there, and there's this crazy man on the loose, and they can't figure out who it is. Yeah, and Carrie lives in the building across from hers. So she's not, like, far on the other end of the property, you know, like, she's right, right there. Gosh, yes. I was like, I can't even imagine how you felt during this time. Really scary. Yeah. So after this break, we will get into the rest of the investigation. Okay. So in early 2003, just about a year after Stephanie's death, they decide to canvas the neighborhood again. They hand out flyers. They do traffic stops just to ask people questions. That is a long time to go unsolved for this poor girl. I know. And they're not. And and they had DNA. They had the guy's semen. (laughs) Ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And they're just not giving up. Like, I will say the detectives in this case. Unbelievable. The lead detective expected everyone that went out to the scene, basically anytime that they went out there to get at least five DNA samples or just don't bother coming back to the office. Like, you get those samples or you don't come back. <laughs> oh, my God. So, Can I ask yeah. a question off topic? Did someone uh, live in the apartment after this? I, you. I would bet, I mean, right? Not for a while, I don't think. I don't know, because it's unsolved. And so they have to preserve the crime scene for a certain period of time, I would imagine. But then yes. the crime, it gets released. So... Right. And I know that I feel like there was one press conference on one of the anniversaries of her death that they went through the apartment and it was still empty. So I know yeah. they kept it empty for a long time, but I would imagine by now. I mean, it still exists. That right. Oh, yeah. No, now. Right. Yeah. But yeah. I don't know at what, what point they released it. Right. Okay. Got it. So 
So many times, some of the police that would go would come back with like 20 samples at a time. Like They were just like swabbing everyone. They're like, open up. <laughs> like, let's do this. So soon they had DNA samples from 283 people. So imagine the backlog that they were causing at that oh, point. Oh, my word. The lead detective also hears, I'm not naming any of their names, even though they're in this book. I just, I don't know. Like, I mean, they're awesome people, but I just don't want to name any of the, there were so many different police Mm -hmm. officers mentioned. So that he hears of a company in Florida who claims to be able to match ethnicity to within a 10th of a percent with the DNA sample. So this guy's like, "Mm, that would be great if we can like knock out and just narrow it down to one ethnic group. Right. But... I'm a little skeptical of this. So he basically puts the company to the test and he sends four samples of some of his coworkers, all different ethnicities, and they all come back spot on. Oh, oh, wow. Okay. So he's like, all right, let's do it. I'm sending it out. So he sends the DNA out and they come back that it's a white guy, essentially. (laughs) So great. Thanks. Yeah. So in June of 2003, they finally have a profile of this guy white guy who works among us late 20s to early 30s with possible military experience and they're saying this based on the bondage and being able to subdue her with no real defensive wounds so that's why they're saying that also who works among us i know everyone that's creepy yeah like that's just a weird thing to say he works among us yeah i yeah basically it's like you're he's your average joe like you might not know right we'll be able to see yeah so it's not like 95% of the world. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, so they're slowly moving away from the peeping Tom angle because they're also thinking a military guy is not going to peep, like, whatever, maybe. I don't know. So in August of 2003, Stephanie's father offers a $100,000 reward Whoa. in addition to the 10000 that's being offered from the state of North Carolina for any leads that, you know, lead to the capture of this person. Her mother, Molly, around this time, writes a letter that's printed in the News and Observer pleading for leads. They get some, but basically it ends up going, none of the leads pan out. The lead detective in the case, again, has been planning to retire, but he keeps pushing it off. He basically was going to retire not long after um, Stephanie was murdered. But then he was like, he had told the dad, I'm going to figure this out. Like, we're going to solve this case and I'm going to work my butt off until I do. And so he stops, like, he pushes his retirement off. Wow. Oh my gosh. Determined to be the one to figure it out. Good man. He is a good man. Um, he was, con- he was just so convinced that they could solve it. But in the end, two years after she is murdered and it's the case is still open, he's just basically like, I got to retire. Like, I don't now, now. I know it's going to be solved, but maybe I'm not the person that's going to do it. And so he does end up retiring. So still good, still a great man. Maintained a relationship. And he picks two new detectives to take over in April of 2004. And apparently the department wasn't too keen on the two he picked. They were like, oh, I don't think they're good enough or whatever. But there was something he saw in them that he was like, nope, they're the ones to do this. They've been involved. They know what's going on. So... They start with kind of a fresh perspective. They just start kind of over again. They're like, all right, let's go back, start from the beginning. Because they believe that the Peeping Tom should still be back on the, should be back on the table. And so they go back through all the files and start diving into the interviews with the people who had seen that guy. And they find that there was like six people that they talked to and they went back and talked to those people and those people end up turning them into like other 
people that they were like, no, but I think this person saw him and this person saw him. And so they end up getting more people that see this peeping Tom. So they start talking to those people. Side note, around this time, Stephanie's father files a lawsuit against the apartment complex because he was saying that, because basically most people do that and like a wrongful death suit, if they don't have a conviction of someone, they'll go for long, wrongful death, like in OJ. Right. <laughs> so, um, but he's like, well, I don't have anybody to sue, so I'm going to sue the apartment complex. You didn't keep my daughter safe. You had like poor lighting there. You knew the peeping Tom was there. You didn't help. The windows were all like busted and couldn't be locked on that main level, mm. which Carrie corroborates in her interview with me oh after. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And so he's like, I'm going to sue you. Wrongful death. So... That's what, that's what happening. The police also had been called to that apartment complex a thousand times in the last two and a half years. Like literally a thousand times? Literally a thousand times. Oh my gosh, because you say it and you're like, it's like a thousand times. It's like no, legit. Literally. Wow. Oh. Yeah. What? And so, this is not a bad area. Well, so I asked that and Carrie was like, yeah, it was kind of like cheaper housing. And so it kind okay. of like did. So I did ask that question because I wasn't aware i didn't know anything about it so. mm -hmm. okay so going back to the fresh set of eyes with these new detectives they go back and interview someone who had seen the peeping tom again this man informs them that the time he saw him he was by stephanie's window and he left and started walking away and so he was like i'm gonna follow this guy because i don't know what he's doing here and why he's by this window but i'm gonna follow him see if he can get a closer look but he said basically all he saw was this guy because it was a dark where he was like standing by the window and when he came out in the light, he was wearing a hoodie. So he's like, there wasn't really anything. He could tell by like his, he was real skinny and like lanky and tall. And that's what everybody else had kind of been describing. But that's really all that he could tell. Everyone was describing him like that. And with longish hair, if anybody saw his hair. Which, I'll add this, the composite that they initially had had shorter hair. Because they were like combining different composites from different people. And so some people had said long hair, some people had said short hair. And now they're thinking that his hair was probably like pulled back inside right. the hoodie or the sweatshirt. And so that's why sometimes it seemed short uh -huh. because they were describing the same thing except for like the hair. And maybe sometimes he had glasses and didn't, but that's something that, you know, comes off. <laughs> so. Right. so anyway, let's see, let me get back. So they're realizing that he's possibly tucked his hair in a hoodies. And he also, that same witness, says he saw them, saw that guy a few days later walking a Rottweiler. And so that day he saw him walk with the dog through the woods that were behind the complex. You know how I said they were backed up, that building okay. was backed up to the wooded area. He started walking through the woods. And if you walk through those woods, there's another apartment complex on the other side of that wooded area. So they're like, okay, huh? Okay, so maybe we should go check out that complex mm -hmm. and see what's going on over there. That was called Dominion Apartments. Investigators go over there. They wanted to interview the people who work there, like in the management office. They spend some time just chit chatting, saying what they're investigating, whatever. And then at one point, they're just like, "All right, so who's this guy with a Rottweiler?" And they said that the silence that they encountered immediately upon saying that was, like, eerie. Like, everyone in the office just got real quiet. And then one person, like, piped up and was like, so that's Drew Plantin, and he's somewhat of a strange bird. Just kind of, like, keeps to himself, looks a little awkward, always looks real thin and frail, and got long hair, like, 
scraggly hair and like kind of looks like a hippie, but doesn't make eye contact with anybody and just walks around with his dog all the time. They just kind of felt like he was a little weird. Okay. So, but he doesn't live there anymore. He had moved out, I think, about a year or so after. Oh, but they remembered him. Yes. They were yes. like, we know exactly who you're talking about. And his name, like that, like wow. Drew Planton. <laughs> so clearly he wanted to be unnoticeable, but he was noticeable. <laughs> okay. So they go on to ask, well, are there any other like nosy neighbors around here? You know, like, you got any Karens around here that know everything <laughs> that's going around, like watching everything all the time? So they send detectives to this older woman who lives there. Because clearly, older ladies like to just kind of sit around and watch what's going on. She comes. She probably going to be me when I'm older, by the way. I, well, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> People already call me Karen, so definitely. Okay. So. Um, anyway, so she welcomes them into the house, and they start talking about how they're still investigating the Stephanie Bennett murder. Um, and her response to them is, you haven't arrested anyone in that yet? Everyone knows it was the guy with the big dog. <laughs> like, what? So they're like, excuse me? Like, how long have you all over here? them that. Right. Well, but they didn't go over there to talk to them. And they weren't, I guess they weren't contacting the police because some of the sketch wasn't very good or what, you know, I don't know. But anyway, he's like, so y'all have probably been talking about this for three years. And we're now just finding this out. Hmm. So they subpoena the tenant records and find Drew Planton's name. And on his paperwork, he lists a Rottweiler as his dog. They start digging into Drew and find out his new address, which is across town. And so they go over there to try and talk to them. But every time they go, no one answers. Doesn't matter what time of day, early in the morning, late at night, like nobody answers. So they're like, he's either ignoring us or he's just never home. He's ignoring you. Yes. Because they, yeah, like, he's definitely ignoring you. That's what they thought. So on the third anniversary of Stephanie's murder, they ask the media to throw away that composite that they have had because clearly this is probably tainting people's memories. They're saying that what we have or what we saw or what we think we saw isn't relevant because I don't think it has anything to do with it because this is not the right composite drawing. And so they wanted people to come out, come forward and be like, let the detectives decide if this was a small piece of information or irrelevant. Like, tell us, tell us anything from that time. So people start coming forward. The women, the woman who lived above Drew didn't know his name, but saw him a lot. And just said he was strange. Every, but that's everybody's immediate reaction about him. is he's, he's strange. Okay. She said she saw him walking with a young boy one day and overheard them talking, like, in a breezeway. And the young boy was like, I told him I didn't have anything to do it. I didn't do it, blah, blah, blah. And then, like, Drew said something like, stop saying everything. Like, don't say anything more right now. And they think that they come to realize that this is the teenage boy that had the thongs. It's the same kid. Oh. I don't know why, but that's what they got. And I think maybe they even did follow up on it. And he was kind of like, yeah, I know him, but I don't, you know, I, I don't have anything to do with anything. I didn't do a crime with him or whatever. Because they started thinking, like, maybe he had something to do with it then. But they kind of go away from that pretty quickly. So, Huh. That's a weird lead. It is a weird lead. Another woman who was walking around the lake one day, so she was just walking and she just kind of felt like strange and so she turned around and drew was literally right there in his in her face and she had like no idea where he came from like he just like snuck up like a ninja on her and was like hey you know and she was like weird yeah it was kind of freaky again this is why people call him strange 
Another woman who lived upstairs from Drew said that she had seen Drew. She has a dog, and so she had, you know, kind of saw him walking around, and she would be walking around. But one day saw him at a picnic table that was kind of, like, near her building, and she was sitting outside having coffee, and he was just staring at her, like, nonstop. And it was so eerie that she was like, I got to go inside. I can't. I, I can't just sit out here with this guy staring at me. So she went inside and was, like, looking out her blinds, like, watching, and he didn't stop staring at her place. Oh, so she my. Up, yeah, closing her blinds. and Well, good for just, her for listening to her. Right. Yeah. Like, little freak alert. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... So now they're like, all right, we really want to talk to this guy because clearly we're getting creep vibes from him from a bunch of people. So we need to find out where he works. So they do. He works for a state-run fertilizer lab, and he is a chemist. Oh, smart guy. Yeah. Okay. So he's a very smart guy. They show up there to speak to him, and he's kind of like put off by this, like, what are you doing here, blah, blah, blah. And he says from the beginning that he has not heard of this case, which they're like, bull. Like, there's no way that you live in the apartment, lived in the apartment complex right behind it and heard nothing about this case. And so mm-hmm. they're like talking about it. And at some point he's like, okay, fine. So maybe I, I may have heard of it or whatever. Like, like they jogged his memory on it or something. Mm-hmm. So then they're like, well, will you come down to the police station? We just have a couple questions. And he's like, nope, I won't do that. But if you want to talk to me, you can make an appointment with me and meet me at my apartment sometime. <laughs> like have your people call my people? Yeah, make an appointment. Okay, Drew. (laughs) Also, you don't live at your apartment because we've been there a bunch of times. (laughs) Right, exactly. So they do. They make an appointment to come. I don't know what day this was, but they're like, this Thursday, we're coming. These poor police, you know they were like gritting their teeth like, you're going to be freaking kidding me, kid. Punch them in the face. Yes. (laughs) So they go a few days later on Thursday to meet Drew at his apartment. And when they arrive, Drew is ready. His hair is combed. He's dressed good. He invites them in. His apartment is clean. Looks, you know, doesn't look like the normal bachelor pad. But he doesn't really invite them all the way in. Like, basically, he has these three chairs. Two chairs at a table and then, like, a lawn chair across. And it was like, this is where we'll sit. Like, you can go right here and that is it. Like, can't go anywhere else. That's a staging area? Yeah. Okay. So he answers whatever questions. Um, They proceed to ask simple ones. Like, do you wear glasses? And he says No. But, of course, they have his driver's license, and on that it says corrective lenses. So, legally, he has to wear corrective lenses while he's driving. Okay. (laughs) So, they're like, "Mm, are you lying to me about glasses now? So, also, he says that he doesn't walk his dog near that complex or the lake, which they also know is a lie because they have so many people that have seen him at the other complex around the lake. He's been ID'd a billion times. Yeah. So, come on, Drew. Like, please. So just little things that he's lying about, but they're like, eh, this is a little off. So they ask him for a DNA sample, and he's a little hesitant. He's like, um, my mom's a lawyer in Michigan, and which is where he's, well, he's from New Jersey. Abusive father situation. Mom takes, a, he has three brothers, takes all the kids to Michigan, starts her life over, becomes a lawyer. They live wow. in Michigan. Okay. So that's a quick, the quick um, cliff nose version of his life. So he's she's a lawyer in Michigan, and I know what you guys do with DNA samples. You, you like, hold on to it. You start comparing it to a bunch of other things. Like, I don't want that out there. No, I'm not going to give it to you. So like, well, but it'll be our easiest way to, like, you know, kick you to the curb as a suspect. Well, they mm-hmm. didn't say suspect at that time, but be easiest way to, like, not connect you to this and whatever. Yeah, rule you so out. Like, yeah, exactly. Help us help you. Yeah, exactly. So they're like, okay, fine. Talk to your mom. 
think this over. Get back to us by Friday at 5 p.m. They like, give them make a an appointment. We're going to make yes. an appointment with you now, Drew. Okay. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So they're, they're like waiting with bated breath near the like computer. And at 5 p.m. on the dot on Friday, he's like, I will decline that. Thank you. Bye. Like basically that's it. So he's like, nope, not going to do it. Not surprising though. So now they just start to really watch this guy, super suspicious, and they're convinced that if they can just get a DNA sample from him, they will be able to match it with killers, the killer's DNA that they have on file. So they just sit in cars, like, outside his apartment watching him. And he knows they're doing that? Well, I'm sure they can, that he can see him. He's okay. a smart dude. So I'm sure that he figures it out, but they're trying to be inconspicuous, but... I'm sure that he figures it out at some point based on the rest of this story. You would think he would just be out in the open and be like, look, if you're not going to give us this DNA sample that we need to rule you out, we're going to we're gonna stalk you. Or, you know, right. we're not stalk yeah. But, like, we're going to... We're not going to leave you alone. Yeah, exactly. You think. But, hmm. Just wait. Oh, just wait. <laughs> oh, no. There's more? Okay. So, they find that he does some kind of odd things. At lunch, they also sit, like, and watch him at work, too, like, when he goes out to lunch and stuff like that. So he'll sit in his car at lunch and not eat. He just sits and stares straight ahead. And it's, like, over 90 degrees at this point, and it's, like, August or, like, summer of in North Carolina. You know what it's like there. Hot. His balls. Yeah, over 90 degrees. And he's got a clunker of a car, and so his AC doesn't work. So he's sitting there with all his windows up, just sitting in his car, not eating, not doing anything, just staring straight ahead. And that's all he does his entire lunch period. His Is he car. listening to music or something? Well, a I mean, podcast I in there? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Is he listening to us right now? Yeah. No, no he's not. <laughs> so, oh, good. Um, he keeps an oil pan under his car while he's at work as well. And then when he comes out of work to leave, he takes the oil pan out and pours the oil back in his car because that's like how big of a clunker it is. Like he needs it to get home probably. Oh, bless. <laughs> oh my gosh. I've had a car like that. That's, t that's tough. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's amazing to me though. So resourceful. Yeah. <laughs> One day the cops are like, oh my gosh, he's got a water bottle in his hand. This is it. Like <gasps> he comes out of the car. He throws that water bottle away. We're going to get it. Like this is it. So he goes back to work and he throws it away. You know the word I have written here? Eureka! We have a sample. <laughs> why? I don't know why. That word came to me as I was typing. Eureka! Eureka? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> oh, joy! We have a sample. Oh, joy? They're getting better. <laughs> so the police go get this water bottle and send it in for testing. And guess what? It Eureka! comes back. Eureka. Oh, joy. It comes back with nothing. Wait, nothing. what? Exactly. I actually, I can't remember specifically, and I tried to go back and look real quick before I was typing this up, but I think it actually came back as like a female DNA sample. I got the wrong bottle. Weird. Well, that's what was thought. Like, you got the wrong bottle. You got the wrong bottle, or you got the wrong guy. Like, this is just like... Not him. Because I can't remember if it was specifically like a female or if it just didn't come back as a match. And so all the police, like all the other police officers in the building were like, you have the wrong guy. It's not a match. Like, move on. Like, let's stop. So that's why I think it, maybe it wasn't female. It just didn't come back as a okay. match. Okay. For some reason that stuck out in my head. I don't remember why. So anyway. So they get some flack from everybody. Should move on. But they are still convinced. No, this is our guy. We're going to we're gonna get him. And I think he actually purposefully threw away somebody else's bottle because he knew they were onto him. This is how they're thinking that he's thinking. Okay. He knows that they're onto him. I'm going to throw this away to throw you off my trail. 
So it's not going to be a match, and you're going to think it's mine, and I'm done. Mm. So, because he is a chemist. He knows what they need to catch him. He knows yeah. what they need. They're going to go, what lengths they're going to go to. I am on the so, edge of my seat right now. Oh, you will, you will get even further onto the edge of your seat. Okay. So, um, so anyway, so, sorry. They also realized that nobody ever saw him take a drink of it before he threw it away. They're like, oh, we saw him have it in his hand, but did we actually see him take a drink? So, hmm. That's why they are also thinking, hmm, he totally was planting that. Baiting them. Yeah. So they start thinking, well, what other ways can we do to get DNA samples? Swab the outside of his car when he isn't around, go through his trash, because once you throw something away, you kind of, it's not a violation of privacy anymore. You, right. like, lose all Public rights to it, property. essentially. Yep. Yeah. So, but they want to obtain it in the right way, because if it's a match, they don't want it to be thrown out in court. They don't want there to be any issues with getting this guy. Yeah, absolutely. They want to get their guy. Yeah. So they ask around about where he throws his trash out on the grounds, and not one person has ever seen him walk out of his apartment to throw trash out. Ever. Okay. So he's either doing it, like, in the middle of the night when literally no one's around, or he's, like, doing it, like random places like taking it in his car and like throwing it in a random dumpster or something like because he has never seen throwing trash out okay or he's a hoarder or he's which yeah he kind of is a little bit of a hoarder i think in the end but i don't know that it was trash i think it was more that he was putting it elsewhere so that nobody would ever find it but so anyway so they things are getting interesting in the story i know but if you don't already find it interesting, you'll now start to find it even okay. more They get permission to enlist the help of a co-worker of his. He works at a state facility, so technically he has no level of privacy expected there. Because it's a state facility and it can be inspected anytime they want to and anything can be examined there. So, okay. apparently. They befriend his supervisor, who doesn't know him very well because he's pretty much a recluse. Nobody knows him that well. He's a quiet guy, just goes about his day, his job day after day without much interaction with anybody. So she's like, I don't, I don't even think this guy can do something like that. Like you, you have the wrong guy. So she's like, I'm gonna help you, but I'm gonna help you because I'm gonna help him prove his innocence. Okay. But she still doesn't want him to know. Cause yeah, what if there is that slight chance that he did do it? She's yeah, like, that I don't he's a murderer. Do I'm doing this. So, Okay. So they ask her to get anything that she can, a utensil, a soda bottle, a can, hair from his workstation, anything that she can think of that she can get from his workstation. Oh, I can't imagine being asked to do this. I know. Well, she was all in. I mean, like, when you, if you read this book, like, you'd see, like, her interactions with the cops and, like, how she was thinking because she was interviewed for the book. And it was, she's a, she's a rock star. She's nice. my favorite person. Oh, nice. Yeah. She, I think I would be her. Yeah, I was going like, to say, what if somebody, mean? yes, if the cops were like, do you want to be in, help us in an investigation? I would be like, all day, all day, guys, all day. <laughs> Bring it on. Yeah. Okay. So she starts watching him and realizing that he does have some kind of odd behaviors. He hardly ever eats at work and he never throws anything away. He just puts things in his pockets and goes to the bathroom. Weird. Yeah. She tried to get his hair, but there's never anything around his workstation. It's always immaculate. Once she saw him comb his hair and she was like, this is it. He's combing his hair. I'm going to get like something's going to drop. So she goes before she has a chance to go. He ends up going and picking up all of the hair that fell down on the floor and around his workstation and puts it in his pocket. I was just getting ready to say, did he keep it? Oh, wow. He knows they are hunting him. Oh, yeah. Such a weirdo. 
She gave him a soda one day, and he drank it, but kept the bottle, or the can, whatever it was, put it in his bag before he left for work and just took it with him. (laughs) So, yeah. At some point, they find out that he has a brother named Donald. He has three brothers, as I mentioned earlier, but Mm -hmm. Donald has been arrested and convicted for being a peeping Tom, and he lived in Asheville. Okay. So they were like, let's go pay Donald a visit. Tell him we won't say who we are. We're just going to go. He works in a bar. We're gonna and go that's ironic, out. too, that his brother is a peeping Tom. Yeah. Uh-huh. Tell me about it. So they go and they get, like, bottles or whatever um, cups that he was drinking out, just so they could have his DNA to kind of compare it things, because they can rule him out, because they're thinking, well, what if he was visiting at some point and he's really the one that did it? Or there's the flami- familial connection you know like okay it's a matching dna but it's not an exact match so it's somebody in this family whatever but they do bring samples back but they kind of decide we're not going to test these until we have drew's too so they can compare the two specifically i don't know why honestly but that's what they decide so the co-worker at this time is also continuing to keep an eye on drew and try and get samples she's like tells the cops all right i'm gonna have an ice cream social because who can resist ice cream no one can resist ice cream so i'm gonna get the popsicle stick that he eats his ice cream off of and i'm gonna like bring it to you so she does drew has some ice cream she actually made sure she ate the same um color ice cream with the same color stick as drew had like he had a red one so she was like i need to eat something with a red one because if she gets the stick she can flip like switch it out because clearly switcheroo Clearly, she knows he's, like, keeping track of everything. She's like, I got to switch it. I can't just take it. Smart lady. Oh, man. Okay. So, after Drew eats it, he puts it in a napkin and puts it right in his pocket. I think he may have eaten two, actually. And later that day, everyone was going, like, kind of to another part of the building for this person's retirement party. So, she's like, I'm going to go back to his workstation. After, when everybody goes to this retirement party, I'm going to look in his drawers and see if I can find the popsicle stick. And so, that's what she does. And sees the popsicle sticks. And she's like, here's my chance. But she's so nervous that she kind of hesitates, thinking, like, what if he comes back? And that's exactly what happens. He literally comes walking through the door. And she has to, like, quickly shut the drawer and, like, make like she's doing something else or whatever. And he comes, like, basically walks by her, opens the drawer, and takes the napkin out and, like, puts it in his pocket. Like, she's been had. Kind of, I think. But anyway, so, so close. (laughs) So, so anyways, he packs up and goes. They, I, they just cannot believe the lengths that this man is going to prevent them from getting his DNA. Like it's insane. Guilt in itself. It's him, right? Come on, what's happening? I know this is a long one. Look at, I mean, look how long we're going. Okay, coworker decides to have a luncheon at the end of the summer. She's like, okay, I'm gonna plan this. We're gonna go to Golden Corral. You guys come. Somebody's gonna be like. What, you know, like there's gonna be a police, undercover police that he's never seen at another table, just kind of keeping an eye on things. And she's just so they can see, like, what can we grab of his off the table? So they do that. They see if he uses any utensils, drinks from any cups, and then they'll swoop in and get it. During the luncheon, he eats mainly finger foods. He uses, if he uses a napkin, he goes right in his pocket. And if he uses a straw for his drink before he leaves the table to go to the bathroom or anything, he takes the straw out and takes it with him. <laughs> this he has got to be exhausted. Right? Right? Like, Yeah. And it turns out he's actually going to the bathroom to flush all of the napkins down the toilet. That's how he was getting rid of the napkins. Wow. Yeah. And the straws. He was, he was doing that, too. It was not environmentally friendly, Drew. No. Mm-mm. A chemist would know that. Right. Exactly. At the end of the meal, there's banana pudding. 
and he just could not resist the banana pudding. So he takes a fork and he picks it up and starts eating with a fork. Takes a couple spoonfuls and then spends five minutes wiping it off with like a wet napkin. The fork? The fork. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because he's like, you can get my DNA. He's wiping it off. So he, everyone leaves. The officers swoop in, get the fork, but they're kind of like... This is our only shot, but I don't really know that we're going to find anything on it because he's wiping it off. So they, no, they turn it in and there was a little bit of DNA left on it and it does match several strands to the killer's DNA, but not enough to conclusively say it's him. (laughs) Edge of your seat. (laughs) can barely breathe. They need more. So they get permission from the district attorney to go into the lab and gather what they can from his workspace. She's like, yeah, go ahead and do it because he doesn't have any level of privacy there anyway. So just go do it. So they set it up one day to enter after he leaves from work. And they he kind of lingers that day as if he knew what was happening. But eventually he does get out of the building and they go right in. And they're like, there'll likely be DNA inside of his workplace, like inside the gloves. He gets, um, he has a pair of gloves that are assigned to him that he has to use during certain kinds of testing. And so they're only his. He's the only one that uses them. So they're like, if you can get those gloves, that's great. Swab is like keyboard, whatever. So they find the gloves, but they're kind of like, do we take him? Because if we take him, he's going to know we took him. And then he's going to know we're onto him. And then he's going to flee or he's going to no, kill himself. No, he already or- knows. He wiped a fork down for five minutes. He already right, but knows. If they, but if he knows they actually got something, because right now they don't, he doesn't think they got anything on him. But he, oh, he okay. knows they're afraid he's going to like leave or kill Flight himself risk. or something okay. like that. So they're like, we've got to switch these out. But there's specific things on this glove that he's going to notice they're not his and Anyways, it was kind of crazy, but in the, in the end, they decide, let's take it. Let's take a chance. Hopefully, these other gloves pass off as his for a short amount of time just to give us enough time to get this DNA back. So they do that. Excuse me. They send it in. They get the gloves, the testing back on October 18th, 2005, and it's a match. 100% <gasps> match to Drew Rika. so on october 19th they called that same supervisor that had been working with him and was like is he still at work and she's like was it a match and they're like it's a match and she's like oh my gosh like totally in shock they're like just tell us when he leaves so anyways as he's leaving work they literally immediately there's they told her the whole building's surrounded we don't want to go inside because we don't know what he'll do we don't want anybody else to be in danger so when he's leaving we'll take him so they immediately are on top of him as soon as he walks out the door and take him down. And he had a fully loaded gun in his pocket. Whoa. So they were thinking he knew it was getting close. And when it it got to that point, they're thinking he was going to try and do like suicide by cop, like pull the gun and make them shoot him. That's what their theory is. Mm. But they did. Well, thank goodness he didn't. Right. And they said, had we not been on top of him, like had we like had to come in from the side, like he would have had ch- he did not have a chance to pull that gun out of his pocket, thankfully. So, he's in an interrogation room for about six hours and refuses to talk the entire time. Almost like he's in a catatonic state. He just stood there staring, like wouldn't say anything, wouldn't acknowledge anybody, nothing. Fifteen hours later, he's arraigned, because apparently in North Carolina, you have to be arraigned within 24 hours. Okay. Which I didn't know. But anyway, so he's arraigned, and he has to be wheeled into the courtroom in a wheelchair, and he's basically like strapped to it, because he did not, he refused to eat or drink anything for however long, like the 15 hours that he was there. And he was like frail as it is. And so 
And I think he was, well, they think he was acting, but, like, he couldn't even hold his head up, so they even had to, like, prop his head up and stuff. Totally acting. Because he wasn't like that until he stepped foot in, the, like, the police department. So, anyway. But he had to be wheeled in with a wheelchair. When they search his home, they find Stephanie's laundry basket, newspaper clippings of her murder, nine handguns, two shotguns, 40 knives, a sword, a machete, a lockpick set, duct tape and handcuffs, which is basically kidnappers. Um, yes. Briefcase. There. Um, underwear, tampons, including used tampons. Oh, gross. Names of other women of which they look into every single one of them because they're like, if any of these guys are missing or dead, like we know that he had something to do with it. So they're looking at into everybody. I think every, everybody was pretty much okay, except, hold on, I shouldn't say that. Most of them were okay. One turns out to be that woman upstairs who was freaked out by him. Okay. They believe the tampons were hers because it was kind of like in this, like, think general area with other stuff. He had a video cassette of hers, like, that was, like, of her and friends, maybe high school stuff. I don't know, whatever. And, like, pictures from a picture book. So he had gone into her apartment, taken this video cassette and recorded it and then put it back. Because she's like, I still have that video cassette. I just looked at it the other day. And they're like, well, then he made a copy of it. and Wow. It that is so creepy. So their thought is that she was actually, like, one of his intended victims, but because she lived on the second floor and had a dog, like, there was deterrence there. It wasn't easy Mm -hmm, to get mm -hmm. to her. And so she's kind of in this book is like, oh, my gosh, that should have been me. Like, I I don't know why it wasn't, but it wasn't. I'm so glad, but terrible. Anyway. So, yeah. So they also find a Social Security refund check from from 1998 for a woman named Rebecca in Lansing, Michigan. Remember, his mom was in Lansing. And that's actually, like I said, mentioned where he grew up most of his life. And they find out that this woman was shot in the head with an odd caliber gun in 1999. And it had been an unsolved case since then. Well, wouldn't you know, one of those guns (gasps) was the gun that they found in his his house that was used to kill Rebecca. But, and it was kind of like two different murders, whatever. And so they're trying to figure it out. But either way... The gun in his place killed her. So Michigan's now like, whoa, we have our killer. So he's sitting in jail as they all gather everything they need to try him. And he's just being watched and kept pretty isolated because they're like, he's suicide watch, yada, yada, yada. They bring the case before a grand jury in um, November of 2005. And two weeks later, later, North Carolina declares it a capital murder case intending to go for the death penalty. Okay. And they're continuing to build a case, and so is Michigan. They're kind of working together, except they're kind of also fighting over who gets to try him. Right. And North Carolina really wants to, because they're like, one, we have death penalty. They did all the work. Two, we did all this work. Like, we want him. But Drew is going to screw everyone. Because he's found on January 1st, 2006, hanging in his cell no. from bed sheets no. with a plastic bag over his head and is declared dead at 2.37 p.m. that day. And so we've got justice, but not justice. Like, family doesn't have to go through a trial, death penalty, he's dead. I, I don't know. What? <laughs> Is this story? I am exhausted. Okay, <laughs> I am quite literally drained of all of my energy. That was a ride. Amazing. 
ride. <laughs> Carrie? <laughs> in bad ways. <laughs> Thank you for that suggestion. I I can't, that, what this was coming back with a bang. Mm-hmm. After yep. Serial Killer September, now we got Drew. My gosh, this poor Stephanie, poor Rebecca, these families, they went so long, they fought so hard. They got their guy, and then, yeah. Oh, I'm tired. They're constantly looking, too, into, like, other things that he could be connected to, because they're not convinced that those were the only two that he committed and whatnot. These are the types of crimes, too, that these cases that really freak me out, because they really go to show that they work among us. (laughs) That's what they said, right? right? That's really Mm -hmm. what it goes to show, is, like, you just don't ever know, and you have to listen to your gut if there's something creepy going on, or a creepy dude, or a creepy person, like, get a dog, you know, I mean, <laughs> there's like, yeah. you gotta, your head has to be on a swivel all the time. That is bananas. So true. I know. Yes. And so stay tuned too at the end of this um, for Carrie's interview, if you want to hear what she has to say. So I can't wait to hear it. I haven't yeah. listened yet because I didn't want to know the case. I tell you what, I'm going to have to take a nap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm going to have to do. That was a great case. Well done. Holy smokes. What a comeback. Yeah. Daggone. This was a was long a one movie. today. You guys, it was if you stuck with us, thanks for sticking with us. I know you did because I know you were on the edge of your seat like I am. I can't. I'm going to think about this for a long time. <laughs> yes, I know. Holy majoli. Yes. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Carrie. And it was really nice to quote unquote meet a listener because we did a whole video chat. And <laughs> oh, that's so that was awesome. Cool. Yeah. 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 Cool. I can't wait to hear it. All right, guys. Thank you so much. Let us know what you think. Come find us on social media. Reach out to us. Keep sending the suggestions. Maybe our favorite. Mm-hmm. What a ballpark suggestion this was. Like it is a home run. Whew. <laughs> <laughs> okay so we hope you join us next week for another one and we hope that we can keep you guys on this ride with us because we're having a great time like i said come find us reach out if tell your friends tell your friends Mm -hmm. that's our favorite thing it's our best compliment so please do that and always remember the world is scary people suck hide in your closet So, um, well, I guess my first question is, did you know Stephanie at all, personally? No, uh-uh, I didn't, but um, my building was, like, right, like, there was a pool separating my building from her building, so it was on, like, either side, but we both lived on the, like, very bottom uh, floor, okay. and so, like, as soon as that happened, I was freaked out as well, because I was on the bottom floor, too. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that was going to be my next question. <laughs> yeah. Where, how far you were living or how close you were living to mm-hmm. her. Um, and so had you had any um, like experiences with this peeping Tom or anything yourself? Um, actually, looking back, I, I think I did because there was this path in the middle of our um, complex where you could just, it, it was tree-lined but it was still a sidewalk so it was very dark there was no lights on at all except for the buildings on either side and I had two dogs 
So I would walk them, you know, at night before I went to bed or whatever. And I'd, I remember seeing like this really big, like scary dog. Like it mm. looked like a, like a Rottweiler, like, like they say in the, um, in the book or whatever. But, and the guy walking him would always have a hoodie on. So, oh. I mean, I never like, cause it was just kind of like one of those things where it's like, that's scary. You know, yeah. and I had these two tiny little Boston Terriers who, you know, thought they were big dogs, but they're not. Right. So, you know, I would try to keep them away from the big dog. But I do remember <coughs> seeing that a few times. And um, the path that it actually led to a, another wooded area. Mm-hmm. And you could walk through the woods to get to the next um, apartment complex. It was called Dominion on Lakeland. Okay. And so, like, all these complexes were connected Because that's not the one that he lived in, right? It is, yeah. Oh, it is the one. Okay. He lived in Dominion. We lived in Bridgeport. Okay. So, um, and they all were on Lake Lynn. So you could Mm -hmm. all, you could get to Lake Lynn from all these different um, complexes. Right. So you could walk Lake Lynn and come up into our complex. Or you could walk Lake Lynn and go into, like, all the other different complexes. You didn't have to get there from the main roads. Okay. So, and my, my guess is... He was probably just walking. She may have been outside. I don't know. Right. Yeah. But Noticed just, her and yeah. pinpointed. Mm-hmm. Um, did Were you living alone at the time? Were you? Um, it's funny. I was at the time. My, I was married, but my husband had um, relocated to Madison oh, during okay. the time that this happened because he took a job, but I needed to, I'm a teacher, so I needed to finish out the school year. Right. So I finished out the school year and I also taught summer school. So I was actually waiting until like August to move with him. And plus that was like when our lease ended anyway. So, but yeah, I was by myself. Okay. It was super scary. (laughs) I was just going to say, what were your feelings like Um, immediately after this happened? I slept on the couch every night um, because my bedroom window backed up into like like trees. Like you mm-hmm. couldn't see anything. Like there was you couldn't even see the parking lot from my bedroom window. Mm-hmm. It was just like trees in this corner of the of the building. And it, if you read the book or watch like investigative discovery or something, the windows didn't latch properly. None of them did. So all the maintenance workers cuz he got in through a broken window or a malfunctioning window. So maintenance workers came and drilled screws into all our windows that everybody that lived on the first floor. So I was like, I mean, this very could have easily been me, you know? Right. Yeah. Gosh, um, that is scary. Yeah. So I wasn't able to open the windows after they, like, put the screws in there. Not that mm. I wanted to, but... Yeah. yeah. It was it was freaky. But, yeah, I did. I slept with my... On the couch for probably three weeks. And then... Okay. Um, and so aside from sleeping on the couch, were there any other routines that you changed? Oh, gosh. Yeah, I... I, like, ran into my house. I kept all the windows closed, um, drapes pulled. Let's see. I didn't – I literally didn't go out at night. I did have a friend that lived upstairs in the next building over, um, a guy. And so, like, if I needed to go out at night or whatever, I'd call him and be like, hey, can you come down? And he'd, like, walk with me places if I needed to go out. But, yeah, it was – I was living in fear. It was very, very anxiety-invoking. Yeah. It was hard. I can't even imagine that. Um mm-hmm. 
And did you get to, or did you speak to any investigators? Did they talk to you or whatever? Yep. They came and knocked on everybody's door. Um, they would just ask like, you know, basic questions about, hang on, what? I'm going to clean the dishes that are in the sink after I finish lunch. Okay. Thank you. They asked basic questions about like, um, did you see anything? Did you hear anything? Did you notice anything? And like at the time I wasn't really... They kept everything under wraps. They, I was like, I don't know what you're trying to allude to, but, you know, everything has been normal. And um, I was over at my friend's apartment. She er, He lived, like, towards the lake. He lived in an apartment on the lake. And we we're just hanging out down there, me and some other friends. And uh, the main detective came down and, and talked to him. And because he lived so close to the lake, they thought that maybe the they used that path to get to the lake as like an escape route so um yeah they were looking at every possible angle i guess and they they did they came around quite a few times and you knew what had happened immediately oh yeah yeah because yeah there was you know tape and it was on the news and all that right so mm-hmm. okay wow yeah so <laughs> yeah i can't i can't even again i can't even imagine um i think that was all i had now i like you have read the book Mm-hmm. And use it's pretty accurate description yeah. of it, yeah. And there's a lot that you know they kept out of the public eye, you know, especially like I mean I don't know if you've gotten to the part where he was also stalking like his neighbor upstairs. Did you get to that? Yes. Part yet? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and he had he had like snuck into her apartment and stolen things, and right. you know, it's just like all this stuff that he he kept as like trophies. It was so creepy. So I don't yeah. like. I don't know who was because who was next on his list. It could have been any of us, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know. I guess he did have a list of of people that might have been the next victim. Right. Yeah. Gosh. So yeah. it was so. I mean, it, something happening that close to home. You know, that was it was twenty years ago, but still. I mean, now I am very like hypersensitive to yeah. to crime, and that's why I guess I'm so into like true crime. <laughs> right. Just because. Like it happens so much. Like yeah, right and it almost it's it's almost better to kind of not not that you do totally, but try and understand what is going through their minds so that you Seriously. can kind of keep yourself safe. Yeah, in a way. And I like I don't I don't trust like I I always wonder if not everybody, but you know creepiness. Like if somebody has a weird vibe to them, I'm like, hmm, I wonder. You know, just yeah, you're I'm on alert. Right. So, yeah. you know, and I'm like yeah. with that with my with my children, I'm like, y- y'all, you need to be very, you know, hyper aware of what's going on around you because some people may not be who they seem. Right. Um, <laughs> so clearly it took them a while to get him. I mean, and so yeah. you probably were not living there anymore. Had you? No. Uh-uh. Yeah. Um, like I said, my husband moved back to um, Madison for a year. And so we were there for a year and then we moved back. But um, we didn't live in that apartment complex right. again. Yeah. Um, but. and, oh gosh, I lost my train of thought. Um, so I also feel like, I think I have a friend, I'm not going to lie. I mean, maybe she's moved that lived, lives on Lynn Lake now. It's not, or Lake Lynn, which yeah. one is it? Lake Lynn Lake. Yeah. Okay. Uh, um, anyway, um, is it still that, I guess, like, is it still a rough area? Cause it seemed like the way the book was started, it was like, this is a terrible spot. <laughs> like, oh, <yeah. laughs> like there's constantly break-ins with cars yeah, and we've got this yeah. creeping time, you know, like, so is it still kind of a well, rough? Well, the, 
the apartments were not ex like they were older, so mm -hmm. they were cheaper. So it's I guess that's where why you would think you know people right out of college you know mm -hmm. can afford those apartments. Um, you know, just they were cheap. They weren't like anything spectacular. Um, but they they backed up right to Leesville Road. I don't know. Are you yes. familiar with mm -hmm. Leesville? So Leesville, I mean, that's a nice part of North Raleigh. Mm -hmm. So if you keep going down Leesville, like there's nice houses and things like that. But I think since they're so old, they were probably 20 years old when we lived there. Probably like 40 years old now. So yeah, they're still pretty rough. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not mm -hmm. the best part, part of, I mean, it's not ghetto right. or anything, but yeah, they um, were, they were affordable. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, I remembered what I was going to ask before. Um, so because you had moved and whatnot, I know you said you moved back to the area, but not there. Did you mm -hmm. follow the case and oh, like yeah. constantly try and find more? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it was, you know, in the news all the time anyways, if something came up, right. especially once I got them. But so you, mm -hmm. but you were following it. And oh trying yeah. To... Yeah. Cause it was unsolved for however many right. years, you know? Yeah. And then just, just like, once they arrested him, it was like, oh my gosh, you know, this dude looks like a serial killer. Yeah. So yeah. See, I haven't even looked at pictures yet. Oh, girl. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I did see, I read that he committed suicide. Yes. Yes. Just like two years ago. Not, I mean. While he was yeah. waiting trial. Right. Yeah. yeah. Which is such a so, coward way. I know. Out. Exactly. Anyway. So, okay. I know. I would have watched, I would have wanted to see him, like, his reasoning or, or just like see him brought to justice, but he wasn't having any of that. All right. All thanks right. so good much. To see you. Yeah. You yeah. Too. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Bye.